Our primary scripture reading this morning is from James, the first chapter, verses 19 through 27. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of the Lord. Good morning. When my oldest son, Tristan, was in preschool, his school put a little book together of things that children were asked and they would record the answers to, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what's your favorite color? Well, they also asked some questions about the kids' parents. Our kids were asked, what are the professions of your parents? What do they do for work? And my son at four years old said his dad worked in a castle and that his mom's job was to make sure the garbage trucks come every week. (laughs) Now, he loved garbage trucks at the time. That was a highlight of his life. So I think there's a secret deep love for mom in that answer. But my favorite answer was when he was asked, what's your mom's favorite beverage? His reply was, sparkly wine. Now, this is interesting because I actually don't drink alcohol. But that was his answer, and he was sticking to it. And I think sometimes we're a lot like kids in that we see what we want to see, we hear what we want to hear, and often we don't stop long enough to hear correctly. We're so focused on our own beliefs and perceptions. Like children, we can embrace a completely false belief all the while holding on to it wholeheartedly. This happens because we haven't taken the time to really listen. And the book of James has something to say about this. We're in our second week studying James, and we were reminded in last week's passage that there is hope in our trials, that God is good, as we sang about this morning, that every good gift comes from him, and we were reminded of the need for wisdom and God's willingness to give it. The author brings us into this week's text today with very practical instruction. James is a refreshing book in that his language is not heavily veiled. His metaphors can be deciphered, and yet his content is challenging to put into practice. Simple doesn't always mean easy, and what we'll look at today is definitely simple, but it is far from easy. In this passage, we see repeated instruction to listen 
and to listen in such a way that action results. In our first verse, James says, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now, listening is a skill that is highly absent in our culture today. We are a culture that is very quick to speak, extremely, extremely slow to listen, especially in areas such as politics or religion. We see very few people able to handle truly listening to another's opinion if that point of view differs from their own. For the insecure, there's a sense of threat in another's differing beliefs. Insecurity leaves us clamoring for others to believe like us because then we feel validated. But what would it look like if we let go of that need for validation? If we stood firmly and humbly in our convictions and opened our minds and hearts to truly hear each other. I remember this became crystal clear to me when the protests over racial injustice started in 2020. And I heard a lot of people with skin like mine having loud voices and strong opinions. And I kept thinking, we just need to listen right now. I do not need to lead this conversation. I need to listen and to learn. And yet I saw so few taking this posture. British journalist Rennie Edo Lodge wrote a piece in 2014 that became a book and it was called, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. She said this in her encounters with folks like us. She said, they've never had to think about what it means in power terms to be white. So anytime they're vaguely reminded of this fact, they interpret it as an affront. Their eyes glaze over in boredom or widen in indignation. Their mouths start twitching as they get defensive. Their throats open up as they try to interpret, itching to talk over you, but not to really listen, because they need to let you know that you've got it wrong. She goes on, the journey towards understanding structural racism still requires people of color to prioritize white feelings. Even if they can hear you, they're not really listening. It's like something happens to the words as they leave our mouths and reach their ears. The words hit a barrier of denial and they don't get any further. Now, what would happen instead if those people she encountered, if we just listened? James says everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. I was once sitting across from a friend during a hard season, and I was pouring out my story of all that had gone on over the years with a very difficult staff dynamic I'd worked in. And he looked at me intently and he said, have you ever really been listened to? Now, I was taken aback by that. In fact, all of my insecurity rose to the surface, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm talking too much. He doesn't want to hear all of this. But as I sat with his question over time, I realized this was a legitimate question. He was genuinely asking, are you regularly listened to? Are you heard? And I would ask you that question. Do others hear you? Most of us know what it feels like not to be heard. What if today we each decided to really and truly listen to each other? And what if we did this in our closest relationships, amongst ourselves here at church, with our neighbors and with strangers? What if we made it our aim to let others know that even if we don't agree with them, we have listened to them? They've been heard. 
this would look a lot like the grace and the love that God shows us. There is something very respectful about truly hearing another. Now, James contrasts listening with the harm that comes with being quick to speak. In verse 26, James goes so far as to say that those who don't keep a tight rein on their tongues have a worthless religion. A worthless religion. I would have to ask, how so, James? How is what I say going to matter that much when it comes to my own personal beliefs? Well, maybe it's because religion is never only personal. It has ramifications that radiate outward from our hearts to our relationships, to our communities. And maybe it's because what we say reveals what is in our hearts. What we say is either winsome and attractive to the way of Jesus and the cause of Christ in the world, or it's a detraction. What good is it if we claim a faith of love, but our words say everything but what that love should display? Words matter. One of my least favorite phrases that people say is, oh, it's just semantics. I really don't care what the context is. Context is, it's never just semantics. Words matter. And James says they matter so much as to remove all value from our religion when they are not harnessed. We have to be careful about what we say. But we also need to be careful in how we say what we say. The last part of verse 19, moving into verse 20, says to be slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Again, this feels like a really big statement. What does that mean for the hot-headed among us? Is it wrong to be angry? I think we have to start by looking at what James does not say. He does not say, never become angry. Anger is a human emotion, and it's a necessary one. For too many people, particularly women, anger has been this emotion we've been taught to avoid at all costs in service of being nice. But anger happens whether we want it to or not, and it has to go somewhere. And for some of us, it becomes repressed, and it redirects inward and turns into depression. Anger is also a secondary emotion. It layers on top of what we really feel. And anger is so much easier to feel than hurt. It is easier for me to be angry than shattered. And for these reasons, James is right. Righteousness cannot be produced when we are covering our deep emotions and redirecting them through anger. I don't believe James is talking about the things that should make us angry, injustice and wrongdoing and people hurting others. It's right to feel anger at these things. But there's a difference between allowing anger to move through us and allowing anger to overtake us. And we all know that most actions taken while angry do not produce anything good. James is asking us to listen more to jump to conclusions less, and to refrain from acting while angry. And these instructions are not legalistic. They are simply good for our souls. James goes on to say in verses 21 through 25, 
Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So James is linking this idea of listening and doing, which is central to his message throughout the entire book. The idea is that if faith is genuine, action will follow. Now, Martin Luther had big issues with the book of James. He didn't think it should be in the New Testament canon because Martin Luther was all about faith alone by grace, and he just didn't see it in the book of James. But James is not saying we need to earn the favor of God. He's simply stating a truth. When we are living in the favor of God we already have as his children, then we will do certain things and there are certain things we will not do. He's simply saying we put into practice what we know to be true. If we simply know truth but do nothing with it, he says it's like looking in a mirror and forgetting what we look like because knowledge fades. Faith shrivels when it's not acted upon. The key word here is in verse 25, this idea of freedom. We can't access freedom if we're immobile. And when we pursue the freedom God offers, we do experience blessing, and we do this by living out our faith. That is what James is emphasizing. Now let's look at verse 27, which shows what this looks like. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, James has already told us in verse 26, religion is useless if it's accompanied by an unrestrained tongue. Now he's going to define what true religion is. And he says it's to look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted. Now, what does it mean to keep oneself from being polluted by the world? Does it mean some kind of separation from our culture? For myself, I was raised with a lot of emphasis on being separate from the world. There's a difference between understanding the culture you live in and functioning in a healthy way in it and allowing the values of the systems of the world to rub off on us and shape us. And we don't believe this world is evil, but rather that there is evil in the world in which we live. And we aren't effective ministers of kingdom values if we hide out, if we remove ourselves from the realities around us. That doesn't create holiness. It creates isolation. And that breeds all kinds of unhealth. James is saying, live in such a way that the values of the kingdom permeate your decisions. Be a people marked by justice and righteousness and mercy and love. Be a people that lives those out in contrast to the systems of the world, which are survival of the fittest and selfishness and prejudice and inequity. James says, in contrast to all of that, you be people who live out a pure religion, which means caring for orphans and widows. Now, throughout history, the church was known as a people who did this kind of work. The early church would rescue abandoned babies off of garbage heaps, which was a common practice under uh, Roman rule. They'd be abandoned, and the church would take those babies in and raise those children as their own. 
We see in the book of Acts the issue of treating Greek widows equally and taking care of them is at the forefront of a deacon ministry being launched. And even in times closer to ours in the 1800s, we see the church at the forefront of opening homes for orphans and protesting child labor. Now, none of these people did it perfectly, these groups of Christians, but they tried. There was a common knowledge that this is work we're to be a part of. When I was a missions pastor at my last church, we had five areas of outreach, and one of them was vulnerable children. The leader of that ministry and I decided we'd have a Sunday where we focused on ministry to orphans and widows. But first, we wanted to gather people together and get input. So we brought a bunch of people together, foster parents, adoptive parents, adoptees. We said, give us your input on this. What should we focus on? And in that room, it became apparent there was so much pain. Stories and heartbreak started pouring out. People who had struggled with infertility, people who were battling with trying to help their adoptive kids adjust, people who didn't feel supported as they gave foster care, it came pouring out and, and the room became more of a therapy session. And the, the leader of this ministry and I looked at each other and we said, there is no way we can have a Sunday where we focus on ministry to orphans and widows because we have to equip and support the people who are in our midst. We can't call this church to something that we are not giving support for. And so that launched a support group for these families. It launched monthly speakers, and now there's a whole village of support for adoptive and foster parents that came out of those needs that surfaced. I think if true religion is doing this work, then we have to do it well. We need to do it thoughtfully. We need to do it consistently because it truly does cost something. And yet, it is one of the most life-giving things we could ever do because it's at the very heart of our faith. For 15 years, I've been working with a safe house for survivors of trafficking and exploitation in Southeast Asia. You'll see a picture on the screen. The little blonde boy is mine. The rest are residents of our home. And I wish I could show you their faces. They are such beautiful people, but because this is posted online, I can't. I have to protect the identity of those we work with. These women and children are essentially widows. Even though they haven't lost parents and spouses to death, they have been abandoned by those who were meant to take care of them, or they've been expected to sell themselves into exploitation in order to take care of their families. This summer, I spent a month in Thailand, and I was preparing a house for some of these residents who are actually from a, a different country, but their country is under a military coup and severe oppression. I was preparing a house to be a safe place for them if they need to escape. From year to year, I don't know who's going to be there when I visit the safe house because their families pop up all the time. Some of these girls that we've rescued and brought into safety will get a phone call from mom or dad saying, well, dad broke his back, you got to go back to work. And that means exploitation. I recently learned a couple of our former residents have been sold for sex work in China. I learned that a few others were given over in child marriages because of this military coup and the oppression and the desperation that these families feel. One of our former residents is somebody I consider my daughter. I was blessed with boys and she's, she's my daughter that I didn't have. I've known her since she was 13, she's about 24 now and 
we used to ride up and down escalators together at the mall just constantly because she'd never been on an escalator and that's what she wanted to do. She'd hold my hand on every single visit. She never left my side. I even had a charm bracelet made for my kids and I included a charm for her. She's that dear to me. And I learned over the summer that she has grown desperate because of the oppression she's lived under. She married someone after meeting him after just a few weeks. He's not a good man, and the safe house leaders told me some really disturbing details about their relationship. They're convinced that she'll be abandoned soon, that she'll be back. I don't want her to be abandoned, but I want her away from him. It's hard to understand why this young woman would make this choice because at 13 years old, she would run from the karaoke's and the brothels. She refused to go with customers. And the kind of courage it takes for a 13-year-old girl to do that. And yet desperation, poverty, political oppression, and her own trauma have all combined to lead to some very harmful decisions in her life. This work costs something. And yet she's not the only story. I have another woman in the safe house who was in nursing school. She had to give up her education because of the military coup when they took over the educational institutions. She was one month shy of her bachelor's degree in nursing. And she cried as she told me how hard it was to have to leave. But she's not rushing into marriage. She's not going back to brothels. She's spending her time providing medical care to our safe house who have had numerous encounters with COVID and dengue fever over the last three years. We went swimming with some of the children from the safe house in Thailand, and one of the little boys in our group fell and hit his head, and I watched this woman go into full-on nurse mode, immediately applying first aid, running to his side, and I thought, she's filling the space that this terrible oppression has left, and she's using what she knows for the good of those around her. See, when we walk alongside orphans and widows, you get both of these types of stories. There's joy and there's sadness. There's success and there's failure. And after many years of this kind of work, I've learned to redefine success. Success is walking alongside. It's providing a ministry of presence, whether someone changes or not, whether someone is responsive or not, whether someone is making poor decisions or good ones, we simply stay. And so I'd like to close by reminding us that James says that true religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. May we be a church that does this well. May we be humble in our approach, constantly learning May we be a people who are slow to speak and quick to listen and very slow to come to angering conclusions. And may we be not just hearers of the word, but doers only as James exhorts us to be. May we accept the word planted in us, which can save us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, Sarah, Q&A, are you ready? Okay. I feel like orphans and widows are more broadly defined in this context. You alluded to that in your sermon. Can you explain a little further on your opinion of the definition? Yeah, um, I I really like that question. It's true. I would say that orphans and widows 
when James is talking about orphans and widows, he's talking about the most vulnerable people in their community. When James is writing, orphans and widows had absolutely no one to provide for them. They were dependent upon family and the community. And so he's really charging the church, be there for the most vulnerable among you. What are some practical steps we can take as people who have busy lives in Charleston to live out the call to care for widows and orphans, especially if we can't take trips overseas or aren't in a position to foster or adopt? Yeah, it seems so broad, right? Care for orphans and widows, what can that actually look like? Well, I think instead of getting overwhelmed by the magnitude of the problem, because there's a a magnitude of issues surrounding people who are vulnerable. Instead of getting overwhelmed, what can I do to make a difference for this huge problem? Can I change it? I might not be able to change the whole problem, but I can change things for a few. And so I think if you pick a group of people or even a person or one ministry that you can really invest in, where that is something you are committed to. As I was sharing with these girls in in Southeast Asia, we've been walking together for 15 years, and they know I'm not changing in their lives, like we're going to be there. Um, But I can't change the problem of trafficking around the world. But there's a few things I can do for for just our residents. So I would just encourage you, pick one, there's so many needs, and then fully invest there. All right, last one, and it's a doozy. In a lot of conservative churches, the moral filth described in James is synonymous with homosexuality and alternative gender expression and therefore is used to discredit churches who do not condemn this. Why do you think this is the interpretation and what is the best response? Okay. I don't think I can fully answer that right now, but I will, um, I will do my best. I think what James is talking about there is not allowing the systems of the world to shape the way we do life. So as I mentioned before, the systems of the world are survival of the fittest and selfishness and get to the top, right? But what James is saying is you are to be people that that looks very different. You're people who now are serving the most vulnerable. And so it's a very different value system. I think the interpretation is because that's how the church has has lived over the last few years is kind of taking this one idea around sexuality and making that the issue versus what are we going to be people who are actually about? Not just what, you know, our definition is not are we pure, but are we living out the gospel? And how do we do that in a way that's inclusive for all? So I think it's just a misinterpretation and that James is really calling us not to allow the systems of the world to shape our behavior. Thank you so much for the Q&A and for your amazing sermon and your amazing work, both abroad and here at Parkside. We really appreciate you. And if y'all have any more questions or questions about the questions or you're thinking about the sermon later today and have some questions, text them in and Pastor Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook Live. And with that, we'll continue in worship.